Problem Gambling podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more. Hello and welcome back to the Problem Gambling podcast. I'm Barry Grant, an addiction counsellor with Extern Problem Gambling, and my co-host is Tony O'Reilly also an addiction counsellor with the project and the co-author of the book Tony 10 and uh, we're back with season four episode one uh, after a little break clear our heads and do a bit of our day jobs and make plans for the new season and during that time we had some great news uh, so we uh, in partnership with AIB we have been able to launch a new service called Hidden Problem uh, so if you go to our website, problemgambling.ie forward slash hidden problem, you'll be able to see more about that. And I know we have listeners in different parts of the world. So this service is specifically for people on the island of Ireland. So both in the north and in the south, uh, we're able to support people on the helpline as well as uh, uh, through remote counseling. So phone counseling, video call counseling, say over Zoom or Skype. Uh, so please, you know, go to the website, problemgambling.ie, hidden problem, check out the new service, drop us a text, drop us an email, get in touch, uh, reach out, whether it's for yourself or if you're concerned about a loved one's gambling, we're happy to start the ball rolling, start a conversation, direct you in the right direction, whether it be into our own service, our own free counselling service or into other service or if it's self-help materials or if it's just information and advice. We're happy to help in any way we can. So we're delighted to have that new service up and running. And the idea of Hidden Problem, which came from uh, AIB's uh, PR company, Rothko, uh, they were kind of brought that idea to us, is, I suppose, one of the most common characteristics of, of a gambling addiction or a gambling problem is that it's so much more easy to hide than, say, an alcohol problem or a drug problem. And I suppose that got us thinking about uh, the stages of change because there's a model in addiction and in behavioral change called the stages of change model. And you can apply it across anything. You can apply it across cigarette smoking, across alcohol misuse, uh, illicit drug misuse, gambling, you name it. And the first step of that stages of change model is a place they call pre-contemplation. Right, which is a lovely name. <laughs> it's a lovely name for basically, I think I have no problem, right? So you're, you're not thinking that you have a problem uh, and you're not interested in making any change. And why would you? Because you don't think you have a problem. So Tony, uh, any thoughts on this step, either from your own kind of lived experience perspective or from a counseling perspective or both? Yeah, to kind of say that people in this stage they typically do not consider the behavior to be a problem. Um, and sometimes that's because they may have not experienced any negative consequences of, the, of that behavior. I think very much in my lived experience of it, it I, didn't, I never really saw the gambling as the problem. I saw the main problem was how do I get money to try to get the money back into the safes? How do I get money to try to pay those bills? How do I get the system in place to win that bet? I wouldn't have seen... The gambling is a problem. I would have seen the day-to-day -day hiding of that as the problem. And even, I suppose, looking, looking back, even when I was in treatment for the first couple of weeks, I probably still didn't think I, this was an issue. I kind of said, well, I'm just after being unlucky. And then when you look back at what that unlucky looks like, you, looking back now, you see that it was just, I was in a huge, um, I had a huge problem. And even from a, a lot of earlier stage, even before the online, when I was gambling, kind of a couple of hundred a week, in the bookie office, it was a problem, but I didn't see the behaviors be, as, as to be a problem at that stage. But I think you will always see that in, in working with people that um, it does take something kind of big to happen and usually real big negative consequences for people to even start looking at gambling as a problem. Because as I always say, like people will believe that they're only that one bet away from fixing the bits and pieces that are going on in their lives that are related to gambling. Like even if you've lost a couple of hundred out of a week's wages, you can say, sure, I'll, I'll get that one bet, it'll get me back. So you don't really see it as a problem. You see it as the solution, I suppose, more so. Yeah, and that's where gambling really is quite 
different to a lot of other types of addictions. Like we've kind of made this point many times before that nobody with an alcohol problem ever, ever thought that they could drink themselves sober, but everybody with a gambling problem thinks that they can gamble their way out of it. And, you know, so it's, it's the problem. And of course it, there's the irrational belief that it's also the solution to your problems, which is based on little bits of evidence, which would be your wins and usually big wins along the way that distort the picture and distort your beliefs and distort your thought processes, your cognitions around the realistic uh, uh, possibility of being able to gamble your way back to zero, gamble your way to safety, gamble your way out of all the devastation that's going on in your life. Um, and it's funny, like with the, the kind of development of any addiction, it's, I've been talking to a few people about this recently, this idea of boiling the frog have you ever heard of this one yeah yeah boiling the frog so like if you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water it'll just jump straight back out again right but if you put a frog into a pot of cold water and just slowly turn up the heat it'll boil to death right and that's what developing an addiction is like it's so gradual that you just don't see it happening until boom you're in crisis maybe a year down the line, five years down the line, 10 years down the line, till you hit some sort of a wall, the idea of a rock bottom that they talk about in the 12 step meetings. But nobody sees that coming and nobody sets out to hit that crisis point either. And it's usually developing, you know, it's habitual developing over a long timeline. You know, you're slowly boiling the frog. <laughs> so it's difficult to have an awareness around that happening. Right. It doesn't matter what, you know, if it's if it's alcohol or if it's gambling or you know food or whatever it is, because the timeline is so long and we tend to just focus on the things that are in front of our noses. There's difficult to develop an awareness around that. And as the situation gets worse, it just becomes the new normal. So even, you know, you were talking about there early on, you're gambling hundreds every week, which is probably more than you could afford. And you're probably more preoccupied with it then will be healthy and would have been having an impact on your relationships maybe or, or on your ability to, to work to the best of your ability and other aspects of your life, you know, ability to get a good night's sleep and so on. That becomes the new normal. And then it shifts up a gear to another level. That becomes the new normal <laughs> because it's gradual, gradual, gradual. And like even you're, you're talking about there, I think you said to me before that six weeks into the three-month treatment program residential treatment program in Coonwira. up to that point you still thought look i don't have a gambling problem i'm just here to try and reduce my sentence <laughs> you know when I, when I come before the courts which a lot of people use residential treatment in that way and that's just mind-boggling like when you think about it <laughs> you take a step back from it you go you know you had you know, obviously stolen a lot of money, you got on the run from the guards, uh, all the things that went with it, you got into a very dark place in terms of your mental health and your mindset and all the things that were going along with it. Then you're awaiting, you know, a court date, obviously being caught. You're in a residential treatment center where, you know, the whole point of being there is to get into recovery from some sort of an addiction. Obviously, most people go there for alcohol and drugs. And still six weeks in, <laughs> Or five or six weeks in, you're thinking, I don't have a problem. That's, yeah. Sorry, go on. But that's what my thinking was. It was kind of, again, it was, maybe it was, it was just the shock of everything, the way it happened. And, and maybe I was still wasn't in a, a good headspace that I probably just needed time to figure out that I suppose I wouldn't have known much about addiction either. I wouldn't have. And part of it was kind of, I, I don't want to be addicted. I don't want to be labeled as an addict or addicted. Like you say, like people in the contemplation stage, they're often not very interested in hearing about negative consequences or maybe advice from other people to to cut down or quit the addiction. The thing, and that that can be the case with alcohol or drugs, where people say, "Listen, we probably notice that you're drinking a couple of nights a week more than you used to, or you're drinking a couple of bottles more, or you're staying out a little bit late." See, with gambling, because it is so hidden, um, we don't kind of see it as a problem ourselves, but also pe other people don't know if there's something going on. So we don't hear about the negative consequences from other people because they don't really know. Like absolutely no one, no, no one knew about my problem until it all came to light. Now in hindsight, they said, yeah, we have noticed. 
you know, there was changes in behavior. He was a little bit more kind of withdrawn in certain situations and maybe talking about gambling or think or talking about gambling, especially a little bit more than I would have normally been. But in gambling, we don't usually hear other people's opinions about, about how our addiction or how our behavior is, has changed because they don't see it because it, it is so hidden. Because it's very hard to, to um, hide the fact that you're drinking more unless you totally isolate yourself from everyone. Even in that, there's a sign that, that you're kind of maybe you're, you're, you're kind of not socializing as you used to. You're kind of, um, you're kind of spending a lot of time alone. With gambling, you can be actually doing it while you're talking, while you're out having a drink or a coffee. While you're... So that's the, I think that's a big difference between alcohol and drugs and gambling is that, you know, usually with alcohol or, or drugs. No, not always, but usually someone will say, listen, I think you're, you're drinking a bit too much or maybe you're, you should cut back on the weed or whatever it is. With gambling, we can hide it the whole way through nearly, unless we're very open and, and vocal about the amount of bets we're putting on and the amounts of money we're putting on, which is, I, I know in our experience of working with people and my experience of having coming through it, that's never the case because we don't want anyone to know um, it's, it's just it's an interesting one with that with the pre-contemplative stage um, because as we said with gambling we're, we don't think it's a problem we just you know it's just it's just um, it's just normal to put this kind of money because we, we rationalize that as we're going along as well and we always kind of nearly pull back to those the positive or the pleasant experiences of our gambling rather than the losses we always really focus back on the wins I just need one of them and I can get rid of all the negative consequences we don't focus on that and it's only then while in recovery that you can really look back and reflect on where you got to within your addiction. As I did on the sixth week in Coomber, I came to Holland and you're thinking that this is not a problem. Just look at the carnage after causing over the last couple of weeks, especially since this came to light. But also the carnage you've caused in your life and the stress you put yourself through and the time you spent gambling and the amount of money you went through personally and the amount of money you stole. It's clear to see from anyone looking in that it was a problem. But even in that stage, I was still holding on to the fact that maybe I just need that one big bet to, to, to fix this. And that was what I was doing in the North at the time. I was still gambling to try and get that big bet to fix it. That, but that's where my mindset was at, even at that stage. So it's an interesting one, the, the pre-contemplation stage. It really is, because I think with gambling, is, it nearly takes that rock bottom for anyone to notice that there's a problem, because things do come to light, whether it's mortgage repayments have been missed or loan repayments or there's no money there for food shopping. And that's the unfortunate part around gambling. <laughs> yeah. And it's, 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 it's when those kind of rock bottom moments come along, that that's often the wake up call. And that's when people would reach out to organizations like ourselves or go to their first gamblers anonymous meeting or go for residential treatment or talk to their GP or talk to a friend or family members, because it's, like any addiction is easy to hide from yourself like because you know we rationalize it it's the boil boiling of the frog so like the the stuff is creeping up gradually 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 over a long timeline and we don't want to see ourselves as an addict because addicts are those other people over there you know they're those another group of people that we don't want to belong to right so we, we, can't, we keep it in our own heads well addicts are those kind of people and we create a picture of what an addict looks like and an addict doesn't look like us or an addict doesn't look like a guard or a judge or a, a solicitor or whatever you know all of these things it doesn't look like the person next door it doesn't look like your best friend of course all of these people can be addicted to something right so we create all these kind of defense mechanisms to protect ourselves from the truth of the situation. So all addictions to some degree, people are hiding from themselves. And then you have the double whammy with gambling in that it's so easy to hide from other people. So the, the benefit of an external intervention and people often think of an intervention of as being you arrive home and everybody you know is sitting there waiting for you <laughs> in a circle that's not an intervention necessarily although those things do happen usually in america as well an intervention could just be somebody you know putting an arm around the shoulder and going look i'm a little bit worried about your drinking drug use whatever it is the the possibility for intervention of, of some kind from some other person or group of people decreases 
big time with gambling because obviously you're hiding it from yourself, but so much easier to hide from other people than drink drugs or other forms of addiction. Like, so you got that double whammy with gambling where to get out of that pre-contemplative state, that state where you think, well, I've got no problem. I'm just at a normal level. And I'm definitely not an addict because an addict looks like something else. And I've got this under control. Everything's cool. I can win back all the money that I've lost because I've had big wins in the past. All the rationalizations, all the defense mechanisms, all the lies that we all tell ourselves on top of the people around you can't see what's going on. So I think with gambling, it's that bit harder to get out of the pre-contemplative state, that state where you think there's nothing to see here. I haven't got a problem into the next stage, which is what they call contemplation, where you start thinking, well, maybe I've got a problem. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's something, you know, there's some suffering, some negative consequences here, or people who might be aware of my finances or aware of what I'm spending my time on are commenting on us or making negative comments on it. And maybe I'm, I'm taking some of that stuff on board and I'm drifting a little bit into contemplation or I've experienced some negative consequences myself. I can't sleep at night. My mind is racing. I can't concentrate on my job and getting into trouble at work. Maybe I've stolen money. I haven't paid important bills like that, that the consequences start stacking up then and start and are harder to ignore or harder to hide from or to rationalize. Um, ideally, in an ideal situation, you don't want to get to that point before you start thinking or realizing that you have a problem. Um, and I suppose what we most often see is people seeking help when the shit has hit the fan big style. You know, ideally, you'd want to intervene with yourself and to acknowledge to yourself that there's something wrong here. I don't have control over this earlier in the day, but that's easier said than done. Most people wait till there's some sort of crisis point. Um, and it's interesting that you went from pre-contemplation into contemplation like six weeks into being in residential treatment, having been arrested, <laughs> right? Like that, that's, that, that was the process of drifting into contemplation. I'm not, I'm kind of laughing here. It's not funny, but you know, it, it's amazing. Our, you're not alone there. And we all have this amazing capacity. I certainly do it as well for self delusion, for, you know, not being able to see the wood for the trees and doing that deliberately to protect ourselves from the truth because the truth is too painful to, to handle in a lot of cases, you know, um, did you want to come in there with something, Tony? Just that comparison piece, like people drifting into the contemplation, like would, would you sense that like online doesn't give us that comparison piece anymore? Because if you're gambling in a bookies, physically, you know, you're, you're in there with your money. You're very aware that you might be um, questioned about, or you might, or someone many counter might ask why you're putting so much money on. And you're looking around to see what other people, people are placing bets on, but you're also looking kind of what kind of bets they're placing. And it was always, or how much money they're putting on it. It was always that secrecy when I was going to the counter, like nearly pushing it under the counter. Because I didn't want anyone to see what I was, how much I was gambling because there's that comparative piece. Then he would say, oh, that fella has got a problem. If I saw that someone else had um, was gambling less, I would say, well, I'm gambling more than anyone else here and I'm gambling more regularly. Whereas online, it's kind of click, click, click. The amount of money you want to put on, the amount of bets you want to put on, you can put on any amount with... Let's be honest, in Ireland, no kind of contact or little contact from the operator saying, hold on, you're, um, you're gambling a bit much here, you're gambling too much money here in a short space of time. Whereas I think there is that, it was just a client said to me last week, even when you're in the bookies, there was that accountability piece where you'd be very mindful of, they know I'm after being here for a certain length of time, they know how much money I put in. So you'll end up maybe even moving to the next bookies. And even there you're getting that... Um, break away from it or that cooling off period from walking yeah. from one whereas online it's like bang 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 and you'll be rationalize it within it because we we don't have that comparison piece because we probably as you said we become deluded so everyone must be gambling the same way as i i am and um, i think that's it's, it's an interesting point because i think it's um it just it just kind of keeps that delusion going even longer because it's kind of it becomes it becomes normalized the gambling you do you normalize it each and every day because that's what we do. We normalize the behavior. 
before we go into the contemplation state. And it is usually, as you said, it is usually something that rock bottom that happens before someone does present for help. And like even on one of the questions you know, I'll always ask a client, I'm sure you do the same, is that, you know, was there a particular event that motivated you to seek help? Yeah. And a lot of times there is a particular event, whether that's one that they've noticed themselves, but a lot of times it's because a bank statement has come in, a family member has seen bank account, there's been, um, you know, mortgage repayment missed, there's been whatever else goes with that. So that, I think that's the key as well, um, is that there usually is a, a, some sort of event that motivates the person to change. And usually there's been a hell of a lot of damage done at that stage because of the hidden aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, it's usually that sort of rock bottom moment that, that causes it. And I suppose, like, for there's a good trick that if anyone listening to this can do, if they're not sure about uh, whether their gambling is at on a, a safe level or um, whether they might have a gambling problem. So, I mean, if, if you're listening to this, okay, you're probably have come out of that pre-contemplative state because if you think I definitely do not have a gambling problem, why the hell are you listening to this? <laughs> so it's unlikely you're listening to this if you're totally locked in to a delusion that you definitely do not have a gambling problem, unless you're a family member. I know some other people listen to the show for different reasons, but let's say you're listening to this, you're somewhere at least on the fence of pre-contemplation where you think I definitely don't have a problem and contemplation where maybe I've got a problem. Maybe, right? You're drifting into maybe. A good trick that you can do, um, it's from neuro-linguistic programming, which is kind of a creative approach to behavioral change and, and changing your thought processes and your mindset. I think they call it the, the, the Christmas Carol trick or the Charles Dickens trick. Anyway, anybody who's ever seen the, or read the Christmas Carol, there's the ghost of Christmas future and the ghost of Christmas future brings Scrooge into the future. So try this for a second. If you're listening to this, if you're still gambling at the moment when you're listening to this, or if you've recently stopped, or if you're thinking about relapsing, just imagine if you just kept gambling at the level that you've been recently gambling or currently gambling for the next year and fast forward into the future one year and just imagine what is your life realistically going to look like if you just keep gambling the way you're gambling right now? And then let's make it two years. So two years time, you have not changed your gambling. You've kept gambling at the same level. What's your life going to look like in two years time? Are you still going to be in a relationship with the same people? Are your relationships with your family members still going to be the same? Are they going to be better? Are they going to be worse? Is your financial situation going to be better or worse? Is your work situation going to be better or worse? Then five years into the future, you haven't stopped gambling. What does your life look like? Simply doing that, because the imagination is a very powerful thing, right? And we can use it constructively or we can use it to create, you know, deluded defense mechanisms to protect ourselves from the truth of terrible situations. But it's worth taking a moment to do that and go, okay, if I just keep doing what I'm doing, what's my life going to look like in a year's time? I mean, Tony Robbins has that great quote you know if i if you always do what you've always done you'll always get what you always got you know which is there's a lot of truth in that and while most of us don't like change this is called the stages of change model uh most of us don't like change like if we don't change something we're just always gonna get what we always got right so if you're not happy with the way your life looks like now then realistically you gotta change something um what do you think about do you ever use that one, Tony, or what do you think about that trick? Yeah, and, and that you, you probably add bits into it as well if you're talking to family members. Sometimes they need to change some behaviors for, for a change to occur because sometimes it's the, if the status quo stays the same, nothing changes because the person knows that I'll, I'll always have an out. They don't have to consider change at that stage because they know that they'll always have a way of getting food or getting that bill paid because it's because again it's manipulation part of the gambler they'll manipulate situations to suit themselves and when they're just about to place that bet now button on their last hundred euro of the week they know that well i have an out and sometimes that out has to be taken out of the equation that's why it's so important for family members to be really strong in the control measures that we always talk about we we're talking about previously 
Yeah, but they like the, again the word contemplation. Like to think about something deeply. Usually, they, you know, if you think the word contemplation, you usually envisage some statue in Rome with their with their <laughs> looking, <laughs> no, looking into looking very con. Uh, con- yeah, deep thought. But uh, I think um, in the context of changes of stage, um, it kind of it does refer to stage with the person engaging in that addictive behavior and in this case gambling begins to think about changing or cutting down or moderating or quitting that addictive behavior and that can be this can go on for months it can go on for years it can go on for weeks um and at that stage they're more open to receiving kind of information about the consequences of the addictive behavior they're kind of they're more open to kind of even um the prospect of talking to someone like ourselves on a professional level or, or talking to their partners about it um it is a still, it is a still, in my opinion, still a very much of a tedious stage because you can very much be brought back to the, again, like the stages change model is kind of, um, you, can, you can slip back at any stage into yeah. the various stages. So you can go back into, especially after a little bit of time away from gambling, what you'd normally see is people saying, oh, I can go back and do it the same way I used to do it. So it is, it, 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 it's a very, it's a very important stage where we, people can slip back into the pre-contemplative stage as well and then come back into the contemplative. It's not linear, it kind of, you can go to, go back and forth a lot. Um, but it is, it's an important stage because that gets you ready for the next stage, which is kind of, you know, the action stage or the uh, preparation stage in some of the models. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it would have been, that would have been me in probably six, after six weeks in treatment, kind of really kind of at right, you know, even though, I, you know, my main thing was that if I'm here, it might mitigate the circumstances for the court case. I was thinking, you know, while I'm here, I might as well try, look at this. And I did start thinking about changing the behavior. And probably even though the gambling had stopped for probably nine weeks at that stage, because I was three weeks waiting to go into trim, I think it was the addictive behavior is the bit that I needed to change. It wasn't just the gambling. It was it was everything that kind of came with that. It was the the ego, the, you know, the, the lying, the manipulation, all that kind of stuff was still probably still there within me. And I had to kind of really look at changing that. I'm still working on that. Um, I do even know I'm very much in the maintenance stage now, which we'll talk about, but I'm, I still probably come back into that stage just to kind of look at things I need to change in order to maintain the sobriety that I have. It's, a, it's an interesting one. Yeah, and I think that's important. I'm going to put the, the couple of links to some good breakdowns of the stages of change model into the description of the, this episode of the podcast definitely worth looking at it's very straightforward but this was the, well, the first thing when they originally developed the stages of change model they didn't put relapse into it right? as if you know it's just a straight line you go one two three four five six boom job done like very 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 few people do that you know and it, it doesn't matter what change you're making in your life it's very, very rare that it's a straight line, you know, or going to diagonal line upwards, progress, 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 progress. You know, you hit plateaus, you take backward steps, you struggle. Sometimes you go back a couple of steps. Sometimes it's a slip. Sometimes it's a full-blown relapse. Then back into contemplation, and you know, maybe at some point in the future and down the line. Like, so to have some awareness that okay if you're looking at the stage of the change model and thinking well i must get on to the next stage and then i must get on to the next stage and i must do it in x amount of time and i can never go backwards or if i end up going backwards one step or back to the start that it's a complete failure you know you often hear people in recovery from all forms of addiction the idea of going back to square one right and i would argue i understand that 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 mindset or that 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 phraseology but i always argue to people look if you've made the effort to stop and if you're thinking in terms of behavioral change positive change you cannot go back to square one because square one is i do not have a problem right but once you've started thinking that you've had a problem you have a problem and you start making some changes even if you slip back and you relapse that's that's in the tank right you've got that and you've you've learned something in that process of attempting to make change, even if it resulted in a full blown relapse. You can't forget that. You can't just make that experience disappear. So, because the what concerns me about the idea of well, I'm back to square one is like you're wiping that whole experience off like it never happened, right? But it did happen, and you learned a lot along the way, even if it resulted in relapse. Or what are your thoughts on that one, Tony? Yeah, I totally agree with it, and and it's um it's going on to even just moving on, to kind of 
the bit I was thinking about when we were talking there was the kind of the, the preparation stage as well, um, like you know the planning, the changes to make as well. So it's I think that's really important. I know it's probably not mentioned a lot in some of the the models, um, but the preparation stage I think it's for people who are um, who maybe listen to podcasts with, with with kind of issues as well. Um, it's kind of like the usual next stage after the contemplation is the action stage, taking the action. But sometimes people, you know, there's one little bit in between where people might plan the kind of change that they, they want to make, like, the, like do the intent to cut down gambling, reduce the harm or quit completely. You know, we would work obviously from an abstinence model. Um, but uh, sometimes it's kind of like if you are determined to cut down on gambling, what changes, what changes do they make? Um, and then kind of look at the necessary resources to make those changes. And then we would work on a lot would be kind of really look at internal, external triggers and risk situations, really plan around that and put supports in place. And then the action and then the action stage then kind of kicks in um, where kind of, you know, you, you, you attempt to overcome. You really, that's the bit you're really working hard in the, in the counseling sessions, in the treatment program to be able to, um, to be able to kind of really start and facilitating that change in your life and that was my as again i go back to my own treatment that was my last six weeks that's when that really started and then from there then it, it went on to the next stage which we'll be talking about but it's um yeah it's a really interesting way when you break it down like you know like i would have done it with clients before but when you really get into it it's a really good kind of um model to have in your kind of little you know, as a, as a skill or as a tool to be able to recognize, well, what stage am I in now? Especially in early recovery, am I, you know, am I in in the kind of um, contemplative stage or am I in the action stage or am I drifting back in? And especially for relapse prevention or for when relapse happen, it is, it's not about, as you said, going back to that first point again, because you'll often hear that in treatment centers, like I don't have another recovery in me or this is my last chance of recovery. But sometimes a lot of the people I worked with over the years that there has been lapses and relapses, but what they've done is that they've used that as a way of learning so that when, when they are back in the contemplation and maintenance stage or action stage, they can make the tweaks necessary to kind of, to minimize the risk of future yeah. relapse with that particular trigger. And that's the, and that's the beauty of it is that sometimes, and I know like from, from working with people and from kind of, from, not even working people, but been, been in GA meetings over the years. And it's, it's when relapse does happen, we, we do go back to that shame, the shame and like the kind of even like, I have to go back into a meeting and tell everyone I've gambled after a year, after two years, after, after a month, whatever it is. And, and that can be, you know, that can be difficult to get back into that stage again or to go back through the stages. But I think it's so, so important for, for, for people to probably realize that relapse and lapses are a part of the process and probably sometimes a very important part of it because there's it's an opportunity to learn so it is interesting like you know when you're going through the different stages to kind of really highlight where you are because again each stage is kind of it's is really important i think in in recovery each stage is really really important yeah absolutely and like you learn a lot from slips and even full-blown relapses i just kind of take up on one thing like we uh, the vast 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 majority of people who contact the service want to stop completely uh occasionally certainly people i've worked with very rarely they'll say well look i want to reduce right and we will work with you if that's your goal no problem right uh now i've worked with very 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 few people who've succeeded in achieving that goal but usually what happens is that's their starting out goal and then as we're working along, they might realize, oh, hang on, that's not a realistic goal for me. Abstinence would be easier to manage. You know, it, it, it's, it's too slippery trying to manage harm reduction. But look, we're happy to work with people in that way uh, if people want to set that as a goal. But I suppose both you and I have worked with a lot of people. Uh, it's for, for and it, as I pointed earlier on, most of the people who contact us are in quite severe crisis. So gambling has had a very, very negative impact on their lives. They're not usually contacting us early in the stage where it would be easier to dial it back to something manageable. Usually the wheels have come off big time and it's destroying their lives, relationships, lots of other important aspects of their lives. So for the vast majority of those people, it's not realistic for them. But I suppose we don't 
push as an organization we don't push total abstinence on people but that is what tends to happen and it tends to be for the vast majority of people coming through the virtual door <laughs> the virtual door at this stage they're just saying look when you ask them what, what do you want to do stop gambling full stop end the story that's what most people aim for but if somebody wants to work with us and reduce it down to something more controllable manageable we can work with that, but I just put a big health warning beside that and say it's much harder to do, right? For most of the people who present to our service. Sorry, Tony, I just had to throw that in just in case somebody's out there thinking that we only work from a total abstinence model. If people want to try harm reduction with us, we're happy to do that. Uh, and the models that we use would would uh, work towards that as well. But uh, if that's your goal, contact us earlier in the day. <laughs> Don't wait until gambling has destroyed your life. Um, okay, so I mean, sorry, Tony. It's very important to be the client where you're at, obviously. Yeah. And that's what we'd always do. I worked in, a, in another organization before with alcohol and it was very much the first kind of, they had a kind of an education program for 12 weeks that they they would come in and learn about the alcohol addiction. And they might be still drinking, not while they're in, in the, physically in the service, but they, after week eight, they can, based on the information that they've got and based on you know their motivation to maybe change based on their experiences within the group, they can make that choice to go into, onto the next stage. And very much we would be working from a harm reduction point of view there where the person would come in and say they might be having X amount of units a week and, you know, you would try kind of do a community detox with them, try to get them back to less and less, not in a way that's going to be detrimental to their health coming straight yeah. up. But sometimes that, that really can work in regards to recovery as well. Because while you're doing, as you said, the motivation to change or to, to kind of maybe quit completely, you start to see some of the benefits of not gambling as much as you did. And then suddenly you kind of go, you know what, I don't really need this in my life anyway. I've seen that a lot with people actually working with that they're kind of, because of the nature of sport at the moment, a lot of people are, are probably not watching as much sport as they did because there's matches on every night of the week now, um, more so than probably what it was. And they're kind of saying, I'm just not as interested in it as it was anymore. So they're kind of changing their lives based on that as well. Um, like even myself, I didn't bother watching the match last night. Um, I just kind of watched a few minutes of it. And beforehand, I would have been watching every single game there. But I think our, our you know, when we experience life without, sport dominated it which it would have during gambling and even afterwards um we start to kind of see benefits in other areas and sometimes that can happen with harm reduction yeah definitely and i think there's a great thing from the community reinforcement approach which is a good good kind of evidence-based effective approach to addictions that they call sobriety sampling so even if your goal is harm reduction in other words to kind of get the drinking or the gambling down to manageable healthier levels that you would still take a period where you just commit to a period of, let's say, a month, no gambling, right? And just see what that feels like and see if you're able to do it. Because if you can't do a month, no gambling, are you going to be able to gamble in a controlled way for the rest of your life? And you also get a sense of, you know, are you having intense urges to gamble? Are you having, you know, strong thoughts, cravings about gambling? So, again, if I'm working with somebody from a harm reduction perspective, I would always suggest, well, look, let's do a period of sobriety, sobriety sampling. Uh, let's keep track of how you're going with that, how you're feeling, are you having a lot of thoughts and urges? And then, you know, once the month's over, you know, you don't have to commit to anything beyond that. Let's have a conversation at that point. Now, quite often people will have slips and lapses during that month where they're trying the sobriety sampling, and that tells them a lot about their relationship with the gambling or the alcohol or the drug, right? So even that can be a good place to start. Don't you're not committing to a lifetime of anything, you know. If if uh, you gamble on a weekly basis, you know, maybe make it a, a month of sobriety sampling. If you're gambling all day every day, well, try a week of sobriety sampling. Something that's that's going to be a stretch, you know, something that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. Anyway, let's get back to the stages of change because I think we've gone into every treatment model <laughs> already in this one. Um, okay, so we the pre contemplation. That means I've, I don't think I have a problem. Contemplation, okay, I'm thinking maybe I have a problem. The next stage is preparation, Tony, which you mentioned already. And that's I'm getting ready to change. So I mean, you can do a lot of things in preparation of getting ready to change. And we've spoken about this on previous podcast episodes a fair bit. And we have a 
one of, I think episode two in season one, we do recovery 101, which is what you would do day one if you're starting out to change your gambling, right? Whether it's to stop completely or to, to reduce, right? So again, if you're going to do that period of sobriety sampling, you start out, everybody's gambling online at the moment because certainly in Ireland, there's no uh, physical venues to gamble in. So put on the Gamban blocking software uh, and that stops access. Self-exclude either for life or for a period of time, depending on how long you want to do that for. Talk to somebody about monitoring or managing your finances and then look at what are you going to spend your time on now that you've taken the gambling out of your life. So that would be at a, a and they would be important parts of the preparation process before you're kind of throwing yourself into this this recovery process. Anything else on that, Tony? Oh, really, I probably touched on the bits before that as well. It's, it is just getting ready. It could be even listening to the podcast and getting ready to make the phone call. It could be maybe telling one friend that you're kind of worried about it. So it is kind of, you're kind of putting out feelers of the reaction a lot of time with gambling as well, I think. So I think it is, I think like it, it's a very important stage um, because I think what you're doing is you're kind of getting yourself ready to make that kind of jump, the, and which is a really big jump, making that initial contact, making that phone call, sending that text or that email. So it's getting yourself kind of ready. And as, as I said, like that, that, can, that can take a period of time, but I think once you're in this place, you kind of recognize that it is a problem and you want to change. And the next thing is just making the next steps into the action stage. So I think it's a very important um very important one that sometimes isn't in all the models. Sometimes it can be left out. Some, I think it is a very important one. Yeah. And you're mentally preparing yourself for something and you're looking at, well, what's my motivation to make this change? Am I doing it for me? Uh, am I doing it because, you know, I'd like to continue my relationship, you know, with my partner, kids, uh, is this, you know, for mental health reasons? Is it because you know, your mind is raising, you're finding it difficult to sleep? Like what's, What's your motivation? So that would be part of that preparation process where you're going, okay, look, on those dark days or those days when I'm struggling, what's the thing that's gonna that I'm gonna focus on? You know, at the say in the 12 step meetings, they would talk about a higher power. We're gonna come to those in, in later podcasts and really kind of tease out some of that stuff. But what is that thing for you? Right? People get hung up on the higher power idea. But what is the thing, the motivator, the thing that reels you back in when you're having a lot of thoughts about gambling that can be part of that preparation process as well you know um action some of the stuff i talked about which is the next stage some of the stuff I, I spoke about in preparation they are actually actions as well but i suppose you have to get your head in a place where you're willing to commit to those actions like the amount of people that i've spoken to and tony i'm sure you've had this as well where you're saying look there's piece of software you stick on your phone or stick on your computer blocks access to gambling sites because they'll tell you oh, i i closed down on my paddy power account and then the following day i opened about 365 and i'm in this cycle and yada yada and you go okay well that's grand just put on the block software and they go no i don't want to do that <laughs> and you go well, look the thing is there you, you're telling me you want to stop like are you prepared to make this commit to doing that very simple thing that's going to help you and people, you know, naturally are reluctant to do it. You know, they, they're still in that you know, the conflicted state where they're not, you know, fully prepared to take the action, the simple action that will really help them. Again, the other one around uh, somebody monitoring your finances or managing your finances. Again, a lot of people are really conflicted about whether or not they're prepared to commit to that action. You know, it's all very well to say, Look, these are simple things that work for most people most of the time. But then do you want to make bring those things into your life? You know, that's the action part. That's the commitment actually doing it. Right. Um, any other important actions that will be in there for you, Tony? I think just to touch on the bit you were saying there, like I, I shared something on Twitter and LinkedIn during the week around um a person called Michael Brody Waite, who is a CEO of a big company in the US and he talks about um, the three principles he learned in, in AA and NA and the three of them are authenticity, surrender the outcome, which very much will be part of the GA uh, message as well. Um, but the last one is be prepared to do the uncomfortable work. Yeah. And that's the bit with that. That's the bit I don't want. To, and sometimes people is that they, they really do want to change, but sometimes 
putting the gamban on the phone or giving the patrol money is taking away that little bit of a, a comfort blanket or something that if this goes, I don't have, I can never go back. It's like, it's like that last big hurdle. And I think when people do overcome these big hurdles, and a lot of times it will be about telling, about telling other people about the problem. That's the kind of authenticity bit about taking ownership of it. But because there's such still a lot of shame, stigma, taboo around gambling, people don't want other people to know. But when they do make those decisions and do the uncomfortable work, what happens is the reaction they get gives them the confidence to, think, to know that this isn't, you know, this is, people are accepting me for, for you know, accepting that it is a real problem. See, a lot of times it's kind of like, why don't you just stop? That's the kind of attitude we're, we're so used to. But that, that is starting to change. But I think it's an internal thing that we go through is that I can't tell anyone about this or I can't put the gamban on or I can't give control of money because, like, I remember, you know, I had no money in my bank card. And it was like I was nearly gave up my bank card like a dead man's grip. I didn't want to let go because it was like that last bit of dignity was being taken from me. And then the gamban wasn't probably there, wasn't there at the time. But I didn't need to self-exclude because I just the fact that the news was out there was my self-exclusion. So I think it's, it, it is difficult to make those, those big changes. Now, they are big changes because it's, it's a lot more how we see ourselves. When we're already going through the follow of the, the rock bottoms after coming in this, and we're already going through that. And the next thing, we have to give up everything, control the money. We have to you know, not have access to the phones. But these are the, these are the important changes to make because like the, the action stages, it is, it's, it's typically very stressful because you're going through the follow of the problem. Um, and it's, the re- it's when real change starts to happen and, the re- and you have to really change your behaviours and, change- and make real strong decisions around your recovery. And again, that could be, there could be to and fro in between, you know, contemplation and action. I think that's where probably a lot of it, a lot of more kind of to and fro occurs. Um, so it is a difficult one, but, you know, like I think you said it in a previous podcast, like, you know, why not make it as easy as possible as we can for ourselves? In, in recovery but there is something holding us back there because it's like there's a fear of a fear of change a fear of letting go of that last little option maybe i'll have it there just in case you know because if we if we like it's like a friend of mine i think i might mention before he had um he was giving up cigarettes and he never forget he had a um he had a, an old kind of coffee jar and he had a cigarette hanging off a piece of string in it a full cigarette just in case he had it there as he's out, just in case. Like, I always, I used to laugh at him. Like, it was there for years. We never went near it, but he, he, he just had to have it there um, as part of his kind of his comfort or his safety blanket or whatever the, the description of it. But it is difficult. It is. This is where, you know, this is where when people are usually talking to ourselves, this is, you know, this this can be a challenging area to work with people as well because they might be they might make made the action, but then suddenly there's a fear of making the real change. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've heard story, stories like that about the cigarette. All right. I, I never understood that. But like, uh, yeah, I think you're kind of tempting. There. But I get it. I get it. The kind of security blanket and it works for it for, I suppose, some percentage of people. Um, and that I love that thing about do what is it? Do the uncomfortable thing. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, sorry. Share the link if you want to stick it up on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because I was on a great online training, it was a trauma course. Uh, this American guy, and he was saying, you know, it's a long training, and he's kind of talking to the group, is kind of pre recorded video, and it's all a group of counselors, psychotherapists. And he's saying, Do you want to know the secret to having a happy life and achieving all the things you ever want to achieve? And everybody in the room goes, uh, Yeah, <laughs> and he goes, It's very simple, just do all the things you don't want to do, <laughs> right. That's this. That's it's as simple as that. Do the things you don't want to do. Right? Do the uncomfortable thing that's going to help you get to where you want to go to, right? Because if you're only doing the things that you do want to do and avoiding all the things that you don't want to do, or procrastinating around them, or kicking them down the road, putting them on the long finger, forget about it. You know, it's back to the Tony Robbins. You always do what you always did. You always get what you always got. You know um so action yeah i mean it can be difficult and there's a lot of conflict and like you said there can be a back and forth between action and contemplation and will i won't i and am i prepared to make this commitment and what are the negative consequences of committing to this action and all that stuff that's normal um 
and it's like it's it's useful and um, i would do it with clients i'm sure you do as well sheet of paper lying down the middle what are the advantages of things staying the same what are the disadvantages of things that staying the same what are the advantages of making change what are the disadvantages of making change and then you have it in front of you and you weigh it up right and you weigh, weigh it up for your current situation and you weigh, weigh it up also for what are the consequences of change versus not changing in a year's time, two years time, five years time. Very simple process, very easy to do, well worth doing. Um, but I'm not saying that it's easy, but it's hugely, hugely beneficial right, to, to take action. And then the next stage is in this model, just before we finish up today, is maintenance. So it's about trying to keep all of those new good habits, all those positive changes, all those positive actions that you've taken on the road. You know, keeping them going daily again, one day at a time, keeping it simple. Uh, and of course, you know, none of us are robots. None of us are superhuman. We will have little backward steps there as well, where, you know, usually I'm sure you see this as well. People in early stage recovery, they're going great guns. They're starting to feel better in themselves. They're getting back into exercise and then they're eating better. And then they decide, you know, I'm going to give up cigarettes as well. And boom, boom, <laughs> it's like taking on the world can happen. You know, this kind of euphoric rush um i would kind of dial that back a bit and just say look keep it simple baby steps small gradual process because i mean again back to the idea of boiling the frog recovery is not flicking a switch and you suddenly got boiled water right <laughs> recovery is a slow gradual process just like addiction is a slow gradual process right so you have to give it time it's going to happen over a long timeline it's not Recovery is not a quick fix. It doesn't happen bang, just like that. Give it time. Be patient. There will be some backward steps. Usually that's okay. It's normal. You're not a robot. You're not superhuman. You're going to have backward steps in every area of your life. That's okay. Back on the horse, baby steps, realistic goals. Set the bar low so that you're achieving those goals and then gradually keep raising the bar. That will be the, the, the main thing for me when I'm thinking of maintenance. How about yourself, Tony? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the most challenging one, the most challenging stage, I think, because like after a period of time, you know, has kind of gone the focus on reaching the goal and focus of kind of, I want to get to a month without gambling. I want to get to two months. Like people, uh, Professor O'Gara talks about in his book, Gambling Addiction Learning, he talks about the kind of the middle recovery bit where people can get complacent, you know, um, your own eye comes off the ball as well, again, you know, a little bit because you mightn't be going to as many meetings as you are at the start. You might, you might have finished the counseling process or the treatment process, in-house treatment. And your the transition period is very important to kind of get that balance um, of life and of recovery and of on, ongoing support. Because as you said, it's a lifelong journey, um, recovery. And it's not that it has to dominate your thinking every each and every day. It's just something that you need to be Checking in with every, you know, sometimes for some people it could be every couple of days, for other people it could be once a week, once a month, whatever it is. And I think the big word I always use now is awareness. So it's like being aware if there's any changes of feelings, thoughts, behaviors, even body sensations that you're, that you're drifting back into old ways and catching yourself and then making those, those tweaks. And, um, you know, no, again, maintenance can also, that maintenance stage can be difficult when the stress of life catches up with you in the old familiar ways of coping can come back in, you know, and sometimes, you know, you talk about being outside of the window tolerance and the emotional regulation um, model of um, recovery. It's kind of like we can drift back into autopilot, into old ways of coping with stress. So it's important to kind of um, be very aware of your triggers, your potential triggers, and especially internal ones, I think, at this stage, and very much looking at risk situations and tweaking your recovery as you're going along and being very aware that at any stage um, this can come back. And I think a client once described it brilliantly, and I think I might have mentioned in previous ones, but he mentioned that it's like, he said that it's like a volcano within him, that he knows it's there lying dormant. And at any stage you can feel it bubbling and it can erupt at any stage, but he has to be mindful of he feels the bubbling. He has to use ways to quench it. And I thought it was a lovely way of putting it because it's just been aware that it's still in us and after a period of time, we can forget about the, the problem. We can forget about the fact that, you know, it was so, it had such a huge impact on our lives and it was debilitating to our, our lives and our, our relationships. I think we have to really keep our eye on the ball with it. And that's the maintenance stage. It's, 
it's about maintaining what you have and that does include onward support it could be listening to podcasts it could be GA meetings it could be linking in with a counsellor or who you've worked with and definitely aftercare meetings are a really good way of doing that as well so I think it is very important and then obviously part of the the kind of counselling work we would do as well would be kind of putting in new coping skills for stressful situations or, or the risk situations and having plans in place like you know work very much from a CBT point of view so it's very much looking at new skills and the ability just to to um to put those skills in play whenever or put those plans in play and that takes a lot of times it is about that line down the page that you mentioned that's part of my strategy the whole time line on the page pros cons um, it could be risk situation and action plan. And it's just when you actually externalize it onto a page, you have, you know, you, it, it kind of reconditions your thinking so that when the risk situation or the internal trigger comes, you have your action plan. It's like a bit like doing a fire drill. You could give someone a page of all the things to do in a fire drill. But if, if you practice it, you become, it becomes autopilot to what doing yeah. it. Like recovery as well, I think. It's just, you know, looking at the situations. What do I do in this situation? And there was the, just quickly to tell a story around there was I when in when I was in early recovery a, a fellow from Carlo contacted me while he was gambling and he started to come to the meetings with me in a tie and I remember I always said to him like you know if there's any time that you feel you're in this risk situation give me a give me a ring and one evening he rang me and again he just said I just need to chat for a few minutes and we talked for about half an hour three quarters an hour on the phone what had happened is that he was very much in the in the maintenance part but a, a, a kind of um situation or external cue of getting money from a job and having it on these person while he was driving back through two towns where he would have normally done a lot of gambling so what he done we we had that plan in place i said if you or i ever need to talk just give me a ring and i'll answer it if i can at all um, and he rang i never it was a friday evening i was either working i think it was working because i remember talking outside scraggs and we chat for three quarters of an hour and he got home and said thanks a million i'm home now and he just distracted himself for that moment. And that was very much part of the maintenance, the planning in that maintenance stage. And he's still gambling free eight years later. So he has plans in place. I, I haven't talked to him in a while, but I'm sure that he has plans in place on, for his ongoing recovery. And that's, it doesn't have to be as dominant as it is in the early recovery bits, because all we do is think and talk about recovery in the early stages. We can blend it into our living so that it's a bit like if you need to take medication for a condition, at the start, it's a bit overwhelming, but you blend it into your, into your kind of um, your life as you're going forward. And that's, that's what the maintenance stage is for me anyway. Yeah, and I love that story. That I've heard similar stories in the past. Like, I think it's really useful for anybody in recovery to have like two to three in case of emergency people who know yeah, either you know them through meetings or say it's aftercare if you've been for residential treatment or if it's a family member, friends, partner, whoever it is, who like that when you're either having a bad day or some unusual situation like that happens where out of the blue you get cash unexpectedly and then you have to drive through places where you would have been gambling in the past. You know, unusual situations can pop up that you hadn't planned for and that is an emergency situation in terms of your recovery and you need to have... I'd say at least ideally three people, one, two, three, who you can call, because I mean, not everybody's going to be able to answer a call at the exact time that you need them to. So if it's only one person, especially if that person's a counselor who's in counseling sessions, a lot of the time, you know, that that's that that can be a person on the list, definitely. And we're happy to be those people on the list, but our our phone availability is is patchy. That you need to have, you know. I'd say ideally three people who you can phone in an emergency and go, oh, look, my head's wrecked. Uh, I'm in this situation. I'm having a lot of thoughts about placing a bet or gambling in some way. I just, I, need, I just need to talk it through, you know, even if the other person is just a listening ear, you know, the, the, just for the person in recovery to be able to verbalize what's going on for them at that point. This huge value in that, right? You know, and to have that as part of your maintenance plan because there may be some days when you're having a bad day or some unusual situation happens where I've had that with quite a few clients where somebody else is managing their money and then out of the blue, they get some sort of money from somewhere unexpectedly. And that's the thing that triggers the relapse or triggers a lot of thoughts, urges, cravings to gamble. So to have some sort of a backup plan in case of emergency plan there with a few people you can call, you know the situation, you can even just listen to what's going on for you. They don't have to 
be specialists in kind of talking you down necessarily. It's just for you to know that you can pick up the phone and, and talk to someone. Yeah, look at that day about anything. It wasn't about I'm yeah. distraction in that moment. So that he was he was distracted going through the comments. It wasn't about we were talking about we left prevention and not yeah. just we're talking about football or something, imagine. Yeah. But it was you know, it's just it, it it's the fact that you know that you can reach out to someone and then uh, and then with that in times like that's like auto and relational regulation so in times when you can't reach out it's about learning that i can distract myself through this what works for me going for a walk listening to music um talking to someone um is, is relational but even some of the stuff we can do ourselves when other people aren't available is, is learn that we can get through these urges or compulsions and come out the far side and that's the maintenance part again yeah and even just knowing that you have some emergency numbers there can just kind of calm you down a little bit it's a way of quenching the volcano because you know that you've got something there in case of emergency but look we've done a long one there today and the stages of change model i think is really interesting and it's just a good way of taking apart what recovery looks like from all from you can apply this to all forms of addiction it doesn't have to just be gambling um but obviously that's the focus of, of this podcast um okay so just before we finish up today just a reminder new service there for anyone on the island of ireland just go to problemgambling.ie forward slash hidden problem for details about that if you like the show please like subscribe review do all that good stuff if there's anything that you want us to talk about in particular on the show if you have specific questions about something if you have ideas for discussion topics if you want to come on as a guest or if you want to suggest somebody that we can reach out to as a guest Go on to problemgambling.ie. You can fill out the contact form. You can do that anonymously. Uh, it'll come through to us as an email. We'd love to get some suggestions, ideas, feedback, and let us know. But thanks for tuning in. We're back in with season four, and we'll be back again next week with a new episode. All right. Thanks, Tony. Take care. <laughs>